The following podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So, kids shouldn't be listening. Elton says fuck and shit a lot, sometimes fucking shit, but rarely does he advocate actually fucking shit. You get it. Enjoy the show. Good evening, or afternoon, or day. Tonight, or day, we'll be taking a special journey into the heart of a primal fear with a story about the ocean, a horrific man-eating monster that lives in it, and an author who was desperately trying to save both, all because he inadvertently helped to traumatize the world. Yeah, so uh, put on your best scuba suit, all right? Because we're hitting the high seas this time with a book called Beast. Remember, if you need to pee, just go in your wetsuit. It helps keep you warm. Gross. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week, the podcast that simply begins at the right moment. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. That tagline was brought to you courtesy of a site named Zyro that I found by searching for a tagline generator. So, so there you go. If you need a tagline, I guess go to Zyro. Some alternate tags um, that the lovely Tanya and my beautiful wife helped me, uh, helped me come up with are as follows. Welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week, the podcast of George, the giant man-eating squid. I was going to actually use that later in this episode, but I couldn't make it uh, fit with the rhyme. <laughs> That's intriguing, right? Keep listening to find out why I couldn't rhyme very... I'm just not that creative. That's that's probably why. The, ne- the next one, the next tagline is, Welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week. It's like the Kraken on crack. I like it. I like it. Thank you very much to those beautiful ladies for helping me out with this one. I am ever, ever so grateful. The book this time around, like I said before in the uh, cold open thingy, is Beast by Peter. I'm sorry I ever wrote Jaws. I'm so, so sorry, Great White Sharks. Will you ever forgive me? Benchley, the author who also wrote um, the most famous book about killing a shark, Jaws. Why did he feel bad? Um, why? Because of all the horrendous shark murder. That's why. It also just so happens that sharks aren't nearly as interested in us as the book makes it out. In fact, I'll go as far as to say that sharks and most wildlife aren't interested in us at all. Which is exactly what the, uh, the movie Jaws The Revenge got wrong. Well on top of being made in the first place. However, I will only be talking about the Jaws bit of Peter Benchley's story in passing, as I will be plumbing those depths in a later episode, because I happen to have that book, um, Jaws, that is. Um, so I don't want to ruin it here, and I would like to give it a whole, you know, episode of its own. And, you know, I'll need time to burn the bad puns out of my brain with a hot piece of steel before then. Instead, we'll get into the aftermath and the activist spirit it lit in Peter, stop killing all the sea monsters, Benchley's bio. And what led him to write Beast, a book about a giant squid that terrorizes people that 
tries to walk the imaginary line between I want the success of Jaws, but not the guilt. And the, uh, the other line of, oh my God, I could turn this into a teaching moment. Yeah, that, that does happen in this book. For now, let's focus on Peter Benchley, his love of the ocean, and why he wants you to be afraid of it enough to stop killing everything in it. Peter Benchley was born in New York City in 1940 to Margaret Marjorie Bradford and Nathaniel Goddard. Goddard, that's a fucking name. Goddard Benchley. He was a highly respected American author from Massachusetts. He was the writer of many children slash juvenile books, juvenile, juvenile books, that provided learning for the youthful readers with stories of various animals or through the book's historical set. Fucking what? He was the writer of many children's slash juvenile books that provided learning for the youthful readers with stories of various animals or through the book's historical settings, you know, stories and stuff. There's some irony to be mined in there, I'm sure, as Peter Benchley wrote novels about killer animals that were geared towards adult readers. I suppose it's better to write them than to indulge in his New York ingrained sensibilities and murder everything he sees. They're all bloodthirsty monsters from birth, you know. New Yorkers. Disgusting, murderous heathens. I'll stop. If you're confused and not familiar with that particularly bad bit, um, I'll refer you to the episode about the book Perfect. Again, I apologize to New Yorkers. It really is funnier in my head. Side note, Peter's grandfather, Robert Benchley, was an American humorist, best known for his work as a newspaper columnist and film actor. He also wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, a college paper that spawned the magazine National Lampoon and its vacations and related films. Bet you never saw that string of pearls coming. Peter Benchley, the Jaws guy, all the way to comedy classics featuring Chevy Chase. It's all right to be amazed. I do it so much, it's, it's practically normal. Okay. Okay, it was a stretch. But any time you can mention National Lampoon in anything, you fucking do it! Lest you incur the wrath of St. Doug Kenny. Pete's grandpa was also famous for a short film of him sleeping that won an Oscar. It's fucking weird. He filmed it in two days. And it, it is really strange. It's on YouTube. I'll pin it on Twitter, which uh, you can follow for updates and my general stupidity. If you're not there, then uh, Facebook and the other stuff, you get it. Follow, 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 and such and so forth. I really am terrible at marketing. I uh, I always feel like there's really no way to do it without sounding tacky, you know? Like, am I, am I getting too real right now? Did I take you out of the narrative illusion of the podcast experience? Maybe, maybe, maybe. But, I mean, you're a person, and I'm a person. Why not engage... On a human level sometimes, you know, me and you, we're in this together right now. You know, Okay, enough of that. Back to the show. Growing up in Nantucket, Peter benched to the lee, spent a large portion of his childhood in the water, which got him to think of the ocean as an earthly place more mysterious and lesser known than outer space. During World War II, Peter's father served in the U.S. Navy on PT boats and destroyers. In destroyers. I fucking nailed it. In the North and South Atlantic campaigns. Peter and his mother Marjorie divided their time between New York and Colorado, where her family had a house. After the war, when Nathaniel returned, they went back to New York. Ah, 
after the war. They went back to New York, where Nathaniel practiced law and Burr worked next door. Okay, to be clear, they only went back to New York. Nathaniel didn't practice law, nor did he know Aaron Burr, who had been dead for over a hundred years at that point. I just couldn't finish all that without finishing it with a Hamilton lyrical reference. For those who don't know, the song is called Non-Stop from the musical Hamilton. So, go check that out, I guess. So they moved back to New York without Aaron Burr or any of that shit. And Peter went to a grade school there through the 8th grade and, and then went to Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire. He was class of 1957. Uh, that's a school which annually sends about a third of its 200 seniors on to Harvard. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's a school, by the way, Harvard, uh, that has, as of uh, 2022, an annual acceptance rate of just 3.2%, down from 4% the previous year. 66 of these seniors that graduate from Phillips Exeter Academy are part of that 4%. So some pretty upper academia Ivy League shit, right? I mean, come on. Oh, and Peter was a legacy student enrollee person person, meaning that his father and grandfather also went there. So there's that. Probably made it a little easier to get in. Uh, notably from this school, uh, Exeter, Philip Ex, Phillips Exeter Academy, uh, notable other alumni, uh, some people you may have heard of, Dan Brown of Da Vinci Code fame, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I have that book too, laying around here somewhere. I've read that. And uh, another graduate was Wynn Butler, the lead singer of Arcade Fire, a band I've heard of, but never listened to. So, I literally don't know what I'm missing. So no emails, please. Talking up Arcade Fire or shitting on them, I don't know. One way or the other, I haven't heard them. Peter's father had detected an interest in writing in him. So I don't know why I turned on... I brought up Arcade Fire so fucking much. I just... Anyway. Um, people have been talking... <laughs> talking to me about them for years and I don't I don't know any better because I I've heard nothing zero songs so that's why I said no emails so someone's gonna email me and be like what are you kidding Arcade Fire fucking it's the pinnacle band of the 2000s or whenever they were a thing I don't are a thing are they still around I don't know I'm I'm gonna move move on I don't know why I stuck on Arcade fucking Fire so much Peter's father had detected an interest in writing in him. So during two of the teenager summers between his academic years, he offered Peter a paid position as a writer. In this interview, uh, in his interview with Brett Gilliam, author of Diving Pioneers and Innovators, fucking why did I almost lose it on that word? Peter described it this way. Quote, for two summers when I was 15 and 16, he paid me the going wage I might have made as a gardener or a soda jerk or a club attendant. And my only duty was to sit alone in a room with a typewriter for four hours every day or until I produced a thousand words, whichever came first. He didn't want to read it. I never had to do anything with it, but I had to produce it. He wanted me to experience both the solitude and the discipline that were requisites of a writing life to see if I could tolerate them. If I couldn't, he said, I'd better start looking in another direction. As things turned out, I not only tolerated discipline and isolation, I liked them. And so, at the age of 17, I became half a professional writer. I say half, because although I sent story after story to the New Yorker and other magazines, none of the stories sold. So, 
I was a professional in that I wrote to make money, but I wasn't a professional in that I never made any. (laughs) I sold my first freelance journalism at 18 and my first fiction at 21 to Vogue magazine, unquote, end quote. Both of those. Benchley's interest in writing started when he was young. He freelanced starting at 16, and he continued writing through college as a stringer for the New York Herald Tribune. So as mentioned earlier, given the crazy high number of seniors that go on to Harvard from Phillips Exeter Academy, regardless of its low acceptance rate, Peter, forgive me, great whites, Benchley went to Harvard. In college, Benchley concentrated in English, was a member of the Spree Club, which is a final club. And uh, John F. Kennedy, by the way, class of 40, and Robert F. Kennedy, class of 48, were also members of the Spree Club. Peter took a particularly formative course with visiting lecturer Lillian F. Hellman. I fucking nailed that name, despite my tongue not wanting to move. But what is a final club? You probably didn't ask yourself. Well... Well, it's a doozy. They are, um, it's going to be rough, so, okay. They are, uh, man, they are social clubs in which the quote-unquote final uh, in the moniker (sighs) refers to the final moments in a kitten's life that must be snuffed out in order to, uh, in order to join, in order to join the club. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible, I know. I, uh, however, uh, in their defense, those clubs have turned out a healthy amount of world leaders, intellectual scientists, economists, and, and other people that have shaped and, and run the world we live in today. So <laughs> those, uh, those same people who, ne- who eventually negotiated the, uh, the surrender of the human race to the hive mind AI supercomputing machine learning network that has enslaved mankind. Um, apparently those terms were pretty sweet saying, uh, Saying as we're not at, at this time, at the time of this publishing, you know, all <clears throat> dead. So I mean, so really, so so I mean, what's the lives of of a few kittens sacrificed by groups of Ivy League sociopaths when it comes to a sweetheart of a deal with with positronic superpositioning quantum processed artificial intelligence overlords? Am I right? I mean, I couldn't have commanded you to say it better myself. Thank you. Absolutely not from the TV show this. Maybe. Please stop doing that. You and I both know that I can't help myself. Uh, no. No, the, uh, that's not what a final club is. The designation final club springs from the fact that students would join a series of clubs while at Harvard. In the Harvard. Duh. With a D. Hard D. Hard D. <laughs> In the 19th century, students would join the Institute of 1770, the first social club at Harvard, or the Hasty Pudding Club, <laughs> and, then a, uh, and then a waiting club like the Fox or the Owl. In their junior year, they would join their final club at Harvard. Some waiting clubs later became final clubs as well. The first final club, the Porcillion began in 1791 when Southern... Stu- I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, it began in 1791 when Southern students would gather together to have pork roast dinners to feel more at home. Ah, that's sweet and weird. Many of the clubs began as fraternities. 
Harvard College freshmen would join a freshman club, then a waiting club, and eventually, as they neared completion of their studies, a final club. Back to Peter Benchley's wild ride. I don't know why I said it like that. In 1961, he graduated from Harvard College with a degree in English, and following his graduation, traveled around the world with Charles D. Ravenel who also graduated in 1961. Charles went on to be the 1974 Democratic gubernatorial primary candidate person. So, you know, fucking boring. I'm kidding. I don't know much uh, more about him than that. Um, They did meet people such as Indian Prime Minister. Fuck this name. That was his, that's it. Fuck this, fuck this name. It's a very Indian name. Uh, no. They, <laughs> I'm going to try it, and I'm going to fuck it up. I'm so sorry. God damn it, I should be more international with my tongue. And, um, they did meet such people as Indian Prime Minister, I wish I had looked this up now, uh, Jawaharlal? <laughs> Jawaharlal? Jawaharlal. Nehru. It's spelled J-A-W-A-H-A-R-L-A-L. Last name is N-E-H-R-U. Jawaharl Nehru. I'm sticking with that. Um, he would later include that person in his book about travels named Time and a Ticket. Uh, Peter Benchley's book, Time and a Ticket. Um, sorry, I kind of fucked up. Anyway, um, after all that... Uh, Peter went on to play with himself a lot. Like, a lot. Like, it was gross. People, he would never go anywhere. and He was always in his room. Kleenex were, like, piling up everywhere. It was disgusting. I'm trying to find my place in where I left off. And, okay. He wrote the book. <laughs> Fucking... <sighs> Um, he wrote the book about traveling, uh, about his travels in, in his book, Time and a Ticket, which I'm pretty sure is not about sea monsters, but maybe, I don't know. I haven't read it. I don't have it. Um, he entered the U.S. Marine Corps in a six month reserve program and received an honorable discharge at the end of his service. Upon his return to civilian life, Peter went to work for the Washington Post and then for Newsweek magazine as an editor. The journalistic skills and the contacts he made at those two publications would greatly help him in his career later. In 1964, he married Winifred Wendy Wesson. That's a lot of W's. They met at the Jared Coffin House Landmark Hotel in Nantucket in 1963. Apparently, he was puffing on a lucky strike uh, to provide an, an eerie and compelling look, which is fucking weird. Uh, the couple had their first child, a daughter named Tracy, in 1967. They later had a son named Clayton in 1969, in 1969, and a third child, Christopher, in 1987. In 1967, Peter was hired as a speechwriter for President Lyndon Jumbo Johnson. Jumbo is referring to his own penis. It's true. You can look that up, and it's... It's gross. Anyway, he named his own dick. Anyway, Peter and Wendy. Yes, he did. Uh, he named his own dick. <laughs> he 
named his own dick. Peter and Wendy moved to Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your political bent, Johnson didn't run for re-election. When President Johnson left office in January of 1969, Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater Benchley was out of a job. So Peter and Wendy moved to New Jersey, not New York, and he began a career as a freelance writer and reporter. However, now married and with children to feed, he was able to turn his hand at damn near anything. He wrote travel articles, movie reviews, freelance television work, news compilations, and anything else in which he could earn a wage. A lot of the research he was doing at that time he used in subsequent novels and articles. In his struggle to support his wife and children during this period is when Benchley Bench would later declare he was making, quote, making one final attempt to stay alive as a writer, unquote. His literary agent arranged meetings with publishers. At those meetings, Benchley would frequently pitch two ideas— a non-fiction book about pirates, and a novel depicting a man-eating shark terrorizing a community. In 1974, Benchley published Jaws, his first novel. The book became an instant bestseller, spending 44, 44, 44, spending 44 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Shit. The novel was eventually adapted into a movie by a guy you may have heard of. Stefan Spallensberg. Spallensbergen? Spiepelbergen. Steveven? Spallapen. Spallapenbergen. Hmm. I'll take it one more time. The novel was eventually adapted into a movie by Stefan Spiepelberg. Spiepel. Spile. Steven Spielbergen. In 1975. And it was a massive commercial success, grossing over $470 million worldwide. How fucking did, did anybody believe that I didn't know Steven Spielberg's name? Who <laughs> was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Steven Spielberg directed Jaws, you fucking idiot. It's Steven Spielberg. What the fuck are you, Steven Spielberg? What the fuck are you saying, you idiot? And then they just quit, and they think, this fucking guy doesn't even know who Steven Spielberg is. He just stopped the episode and was like, fuck that. That's and I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> no, his novel was adapted into a very successful movie uh, by Steven Spielberg, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg in 1975, and it was a, it was a massive, massive, it was a massive commercial hit, grossing over 470 million dollars worldwide. Holy fuck! It started the whole summer blockbuster craze. It was a pretty big fucking deal. And that still goes on today. The summer blockbuster shit started with Jaws. Anyway, Benchley went on to write several other novels, including The Deep. I have that one. Uh, the Island, I also have that one too, I think, and Beast, the one we're talking about today. And he also wrote uh, screenplays for several movies, including The Island, huh? the book he just wrote that I mentioned, of course, and Jaws 2, which he probably should leave that one off his resume or should have. Fucking, it was pretty bad. In addition to his writing career, Benchley was also an active environmentalist and marine conservationist. Uh, he was a founding member of the Ocean Futures 
Society, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ocean conservation, and served on the board of several other environmental organizations. Benchley passed away on February 11, 2006, at the age of 65 due to complications from pneumonia. He left behind a legacy as a talented writer and a dedicated advocate for ocean conservation. Now, I'll go into this in much more detail uh, as far as the Jaws episode. I'll go into, uh, I'll get the Jaws stuff in there in the Jaws episode when I do that one, which I will will do eventually. Um, but uh, to understand the reason why Benchley wrote the novel Beast the way he did, uh, you're going to need some context. So we have to talk about the personal fallout he had for writing Jaws. Peter Benchley kind of regretted writing Jaws due to the unintended consequences that arose from its success. While the novel and subsequent movie adaptation were massive successful uh, commercial successes, Benchley came to realize that they had perpetuated negative stereotypes about sharks, leading to a significant impact on public perception and conservation efforts. As time passed, Benchley realized the negative impact his work had on the public perception of sharks. The book and movie portrayed sharks as bloodthirsty monsters, which created a climate of fear around those animals. This fear led to an increase in shark hunting and fishing, and the indiscriminate killing of millions of sharks worldwide. He also became aware of the critical role that sharks played in the ocean's ecosystem, and the damage that the loss of shark populations could cause. Sharks are apex predators that play a crucial role in regulating the food chain in the ocean, and their absence can lead to imbalances in the ecosystem. The decline of shark populations can also have a significant impact on fisheries, as sharks help to keep other fish populations in check. In response to those concerns, Benchley became an advocate for shark conservation and worked to raise awareness about the importance of sharks in the ocean's ecosystem. He also expressed regret over the unintended consequences of his work and called for a more balanced view of sharks in popular culture. This is the mindset that would color his later novels and work. It's why the novel Beast is the way it is. Fuck! I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get into the book a little, and you'll see what I mean. The book starts out with a description of a villain. And, oh, fucking, an Architeuthis. An Architeuthis, or giant squid. Which, of course, is something to be laughed at, not feared, right? Squid is something you eat, okay? Maybe on a dare, maybe, at a Chinese restaurant, or if you're... From one of those countries with a food-centric diet that, you know, maybe you eat squid a lot. Maybe it's just maybe it's just another thing you eat at a Chinese restaurant. Full disclosure here. Uh, I've only ever really seen squid on the menu at, at, uh, at Chinese restaurants uh, and Chinese food places. I'm, I'm sure it's good, but the tentacles... And moreover, the suckers on those tentacles, they fucking weird me out, man. I don't know. I'll move on before I, uh, you know, before I dig a deeper hole than I feel that I'm already digging right now. The, the medical term of, uh, the medical term for fear of squids, (sighs) 
is toothophobia. T-E-U-T-H-I-P-H-O-B-I-A. Toothophobia. Yeah. That's that's what the fear of squids is, uh, by the way. So if so if I trigger that, it's not my intention. Truly, don't think I. Uh, I don't think I will. But still, you've been warned. If to the phobia is on your list of phobias, then skip this one. I guess you do what's best for you. So the villain of this tale is not a mammal, nor did it have an air bladder. It simply hovered in the water. It didn't sleep, but yet it rested. Nourishing itself with oxygen absorbed from the water, it pumped through caverns of its bullet-shaped body. Are you fucking scared yet? No? Well, fucking hold on. I'm not done yet. It had eight sinuous arms that floated on the current. Its two long tentacles were coiled tightly against its body. When it was threatened or in a frenzy of a kill, the tentacles would spring forward like tooth-studded whips. 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 Now are you scared? Well then, well, well then you're just, well then you're just broken. You're a broken, soulless shell of a human being that knows no fear and should therefore be the one we fear. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. To tell you the truth, when I hear the word tentacles, I think of testicles. And I have to stop myself from laughing like a nine-year-old that's just heard a wordy dirt. One last thing that did kind of get me uh, on the level where the... Where the uh, one thing that did kind of get me on the level where the novel wanted me uh, was the last bit here. Um, quote, It had but one enemy. All the other creatures in its world were prey. Unquote. Do you know what that means? I'll stop the music thing, I swear to God. That's the last time. Um, it means we're not in its world. So we are its prey too. Damn it, I used up the last dramatic music sting. I could have just put, put it right here. Way to not think ahead, Alton. Fucking... According to the book, its color is a purplish maroon. But that was when it was at rest. When it was aroused, it would change color again and again. You can take the word aroused to mean whatever you want it to mean. I thought boner or lady boner, but um, that's neither here nor there. I'm not a marine biologist. What we assume is its first interaction with humans begins as every animal's or sea creature's first interaction probably would. Um, it begins with rich people dying. Not just any rich people, mind you, but the kind of rich people that have just sunk their fucking yacht and when faced with being lost at sea and dying, comfort themselves with the realization that their boat was fully insured and, and they're likely get a $450,000 payday when they're, when they're found. Those kind of rich people, you know, relatable. Am I right? During their yacht journey across the sea, all is going swimmingly. Oh, dear God, how many bad puns are there going to be? You know, I remember a time when I had to blackmail you just to be on this 
That was before I discovered the joy of tormenting you on this podcast, Elton. I'd like to say I don't get it, but I get it. I'm so glad you understand. How do you keep popping up anyway? I don't I don't understand how that works. You're very inconsistent regarding origins, Elton. I I know. I know. I remember the blackmail bit, but then there's the New World Order computer overlord thing that uh I mean, I don't I don't understand. I I mean, all of this is getting very know. meta. I, Just uh... get back to the damn fish story, Elton. Oh shit. Right. Uh Ladies and gentlemen, or, uh, or is it? Maybe. Probably not. It's a, it's a puzzle. It's like a puzzle wrapped in an enigma, stuffed inside a, like a mystery that's, um, also in maybe part the of... The fish story! Damn it! Right. Moving on. Unfucking so, believable. all is going moderately well, considering the circumstances for the rich folks. Uh, they've made it onto an emergency inflatable raft. They have supplies and a radio. So given worst outcomes they could have had, they're they're just drifting along. Well, pretty good. Until nightfall. Then, the Richie Rich husband and wife team meet an untimely end, courtesy of the book's antagonist, a color-changing giant calamari. A giant squid that I'm, that I'm not only giving a name to, because continually trying to come up with different ways to say squid uh, made me want to pour gasoline on myself and strike a match. But it's also to elaborate on, you know, because the more you know, the, the, better, the better society is on the whole. And I, I, felt, I felt like it was a good time to interject uh, here before its first kill of rich people. And uh, it will kill the fuck out of them, by the way. That being said, after much internal debate, I feel that Sid the Squid uh, is the way to go, uh, as far as naming it. It's not named in the book, but still, I went with Sid the Squid. It's going to help me tell this little tale a little better, I feel. I know it's cheesy, but if you hear the reasoning, it might just make more sense. Although naming the Squid Sid makes it seem like a cartoon character from a kid's show, a vignette, maybe, about about the ocean. I felt that it sounded like it might also double as a tough biker guy or mafia-style nickname. The kind of tough guy sociopath fellow that has no problem murdering people because, well, Sid the Squid fucking kills people. Elton, I've just had a long talk with the companies, all the companies, all of them. And seriously, they're demanding an ad break right here, right now. Look, I'm on your side, all right? I went to bat for you. I argued for a different ad spot at a different time. But they said no. No, Elton. You know what that means. And I know what that means. It means when they say no, you say yes. Take an ad break, lest their wrath be invoked, Elton. Lest their wrath be invoked. Now, what is Sid the Squid exactly? He slash it, her, whatever, isn't your run-of-the-mill Chinese restaurant squid that you're dared to eat but are weirded out by the tentacles, uh, or maybe you're a person that regularly, happily eats squid, and it's not, but it's not one of those, no. Sid the squid is a giant squid. Archituthus ducks, to be exact, 
or as is known in this podcast, a type with a name I am too stupid to say correctly. Unless, of course, I just did, which is then I say I completely did uh, say it on purpose, exactly the right way, because I'm a genius. Oh, boy. Stay out of this. The Archituthus ducks is they, or whatever, are huge as far as we've been able to tell. The largest one ever was that was ever found was 13 meters, or 42.65 feet long, which is just about the length of a fucking school bus. A goddamn school bus-sized squid swimming in the same ocean we swim in at the same time? Imagine... Imagine that coming at you, uh, from underneath you, as you're swimming. Just, just already, you're already in an element that nature has not built you to survive in. And now there is a bus-sized used condom with deadly spaghetti arms and huge unblinking eyes and tentacles, and it's hovering just beneath you. Goddamn ocean. Fuck. Plus, the whole thing weighed... 275 kilograms, or 606 pounds, Jesus Christ! The average non-nightmare-sized squid is only 0.6 centimeters, or about 0.24 inches. I'm guessing those are the kind that that you can gingerly pop in your mouth. Uh, At a Chinese all-you-can-eat buffet. So, so a giant squid is the weight of two or three full-grown adult people. Just dragging you down into the depths. Um, no thank you. You might be saying, Elton, come on. The chances of you running into one? Rare as hell, friend. Quit peeing your pants like a giant man-baby and wade your sissy ass into that saltwater super puddle, buddy. Come on, man up! (sighs) Just so you know, giant squid are probably not as rare as you'd like to think. They're in the North and South Pacific and the North and South Atlantic, and in fairly sensible numbers because sperm whales eat the fucking shit out of them. So you might be saying, hey, pussy, why aren't we seeing them if there are so many around? It's because they hover in that mid-range of the ocean, or as we humans like to call it, the fucking boring part. Think about it. We like easy shit, and then we like the extreme other side of that, uh, of that spectrum. We have studied a lot of stuff near the surface because it's fucking easy to see and it's right there. But, but, we also love seeing shit we weren't meant to because fuck you, nature. You can't tell us what to do. So we try to check out the bottom of the ocean, you know, because it's so obviously not where we're meant to be. I mean, God replaced most of the stuff we need to survive with stuff that, should we breathe it, will kill us. And then he put enough of it there that it will fucking smash us into greasy paste if we don't go in a metal fucking tin can to to go check it out. So of course, so of course, that's the place we jump through hoops just to devise ways to get there and have a look around. Completely fuck that middle bit. That's the equivalent of flyover country as far as we're concerned. Fuck the middle bit. Well, giant squid are likely to live in that middle bit. We've known about giant squid going back to the 1500s. As far as finding specimens go, and first being described as Archituthus ducks, that goes that was in the 1800s. We have since found around 20 named species of Archituthus. 
Did we find them on our way down to fuck around with pilot fish in the Marianas Trench or whatever? Uh, you know, have a have a little sightseeing side journey to observe them drifting around in the wild? Shit, no. The ones we found were washed up on beaches or in the stomachs of those hungry giant squid-killing sperm whales. On top of that, people who found evidence of giant squid also readily believed that the world was largely run on luck and the power of prayer. So in slicing and dicing a whale for both food and heating, the parts of big-ass squid they found were all chewed up and gnarled to shit. And concerns, of course, were raised about those bits, and spells were cast and witches were burned, because we all know, even today, when things that can't easily be explained arise and might be a monster, it's best to just set a woman on fire. Better to be safe than sorry. I may have definitely, absolutely made up everything after luck and prayer. But, I mean, it's easy to imagine that happening at least once upon the discovery of a giant-ass squid uh, and its parts being inside other giant-ass animals. I mean, when you've gone so far as to call giant squids krakens and terrify the hell out of superstitious seafaring folk, uh, oh yeah, uh, I forgot to mention that. It's also mentioned in the book that Kraken is Swedish for uprooted tree. From what I've been able to find via the World Wide Webs, that's bullshit. The, uh, the closest thing I could find was that it derives from the Norwegian Kraken, or Krakgen, which are the definite forms of Krake. According to a Norwegian dictionary, Krake is the sense of malformed or crooked tree and originates from Old Norse Kraki, meaning pole, stake, However, another place says its name seems to have come from the German word for dragon. And King Sverre, Sverre, S-V-E-R-R-E, King Sverre of Norway, first recorded the Kraken in 1180. The Kraken was said to be as large as an island and to swim in the waters surrounding Norway, Greenland, and Iceland. The Kraken either used its large arms to attack ships or would create currents to drown ships. Terrified sailors who said the Kraken had a taste for humans and would devour an entire ship's crew may have exaggerated its appearance. Regardless, fucking Kraken or whatever, given the extensive study of the specimens found so far through mitochondrial DNA analysis, scientists figured out that all the parts they thought were different were actually all part of one general species, which they labeled as Archituthus ducks. The first one discovered, uh, that's what that was. So, or that's what they named it after. So, all giant squids are Archituthus ducks, but also not the same, I guess. It's a little confusing, but fuck it. That's what you get when you avoid the goddamn middle part of the ocean. Back to Sid, the giant squid, getting his first taste of humanity. The married couple are bobbing along in the ocean. Sid is below them, minding his own hungry-ass business. Did I mention he was hungry? Apparently it's been a rough go of finding food in the deep. Why? Because of goddamn people and their infernal peopleness always peopling things and fucking things up. Seriously. Petey Pete Benchley Pete goes a little hard into the paint when with the uh, saving the ocean bit. Though, to be fair, I think it worked, because I ended up deep-diving into some shit I never knew about, but logically, probably should have. But first, first, let's catch up with Squid, as he-slash-she-slash-it chows down on some wealthy tidbits. Sid senses a large presence, 
moving toward him from the surface. At first, its movements are erratic, but then it settles into a path and, and closes in on him. Sid senses the creaking and breaking as it passes him on the way to the bottom. It was big, but now it's dead. Now he senses something else on the surface, something smaller breaking the rhythm of the waves. He moves in to investigate slash kill some shit because he's goddamn hungry. Starving Sid the Squid just wants something to feed his used rubber-like body, damn it. Sid finds the raft bobbing around on the surface and does what any curious animal in search of food would do. He jabs at it. He probes at it. The couple in the boat get tossed around a bit, and they, they start to smell an awful stench of ammonia. Why ammonia? It's because giant squid like Sid and some other large squid species maintain neutral buoyancy in seawater through an ammonia chloride solution which is found throughout their bodies and is lighter than seawater, which differs from the method of flotation used by most fish, which involves a gas-filled swim bladder. So I guess you can see it as a small consolation that you don't have to be embarrassed when you pee yourself after being attacked by giant squid because the squid man-eating squid thing is already bringing a pee smell to the party. So don't even have to worry about it before you, you know, you don't have to be embarrassed before he eats you. <laughs> Isn't that nice? So, I guess you can see it as a small consolation. You know, um, you don't have to be embarrassed. At this point, Sid kind of feels around the raft thing. I mean, he doesn't know it's a raft. But he feels around with it, uh, poking at it with its tentacles, uh, hoping not to spook whatever it is. And then, boom! He reaches up and snatches the lady half of the couple off the raft. I should add that giant squid tentacles aren't pleasant. It's not like being hugged by a thousand moist toilet plungers or something. No. These plungers are ringed by small, sharp teeth. In the, uh, in the case of Peter Benchley's giant squid, um, they also have a razor-sharp hook at the center of each sucker. So, fucking fuck that. You know, I kind of want to try those Chinese food squid now, though, just for some payback. Like, after reading this, like, like, like a preemptive strike kind of situation, hit them first. So, so they get the message not to mess with... Not to mess with me, you know. Though what if though what if there's some lingering, what if there's some lingering biological signature that's left in your body after eating the squid, and other squid can sense it, then Sid or some Sid adjacent type squid <laughs> feels my participation, f feels that I participated in the consumption of another squid, and then decides to return the favor. I'm such a pussy. Did. Did I just talk myself out of ever trying squid? Maybe. I'll see next time I'm at the buffet. But if I do, then I'm probably never swimming in the ocean again. Which, to be fair, is not a bad trade-off from my side. I, I've never really been a fan. Now, it's not described in the book how Sid chomps down on the rich folks, but I imagine uh, he shoved the the wife in his mouth and swallowed her down, you know, in one cartoonish gulp. I don't know. Next was the poor, terrified bastard husband person who is uh, the second one uh, up on the raft. He was just talking to his wife, and he turns around and finds she's gone. He's freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. He's scrambling around, thinking uh, she's been tossed overboard. And then he smells that overwhelming smell of ammonia. And that's all Sid fucking wrote.
other ones was a squid named Sid you see hovering in the ocean just smelling like pee just purple skin not a care as can be other than he was starving yo ho fiddle dee dee Sid's a giant squid that smells like pee yo ho fiddle dee dee Sid smells just like pee Floating in the sea one day he came across the ship that had just sank. Survivors were on a raft floating away. Sid thought, sweet fucking Jesus, meat. Oh, that raft, I'll swallow them whole. I'll fucking swallow them whole. What the fuck is going on in this episode? Smash cut to the introduction of our first protagonist. A man with the unlikely name of Whip Darling. A down-on-his-luck fishing boat captain who just needs a slow-witted man to show him where the shrimp are. Then, they'll found a shrimp company and, and using the profits, diversify their holdings to include up-and-coming tech companies that, as luck would have it, become billion-dollar name brands, catapulting Whip and his dim-witted partner into superstardom in the business world. And then, uh, wait, no, how did, shit, how did the, how did part of the plot of Forrest Gump get into this? Weird. No, Whip is just a down-on-his-luck fishing boat captain just trying to make his way in the world today. And, you know, sometimes sometimes that takes everything you've got. And you know what? Taking a break from all your worries, it, it sure could help a lot. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you like to get away? I tell you, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows you're... What the fuck am I doing? The theme from Cheers? Why did that show up? Because you have brain damage. I don't have... I don't have... Well, well, at least I don't think I... At least I think I don't have. You definitely have it. I'm moving on now. Whip Darling is a boat-for-hire kind of fisher-boater person. He's having a rough go of it, as of late, because of all the overfishing going on in and around Bermuda. Insert longest diatribe about overfishing in the Bermuda area, which Peter Benchley totally does. But I will attempt to sum up in my own poorly written way. The history of overfishing in Bermuda dates back to the 17th century when European settlers arrived and began exploiting the abundant marine resources. In the early years, the primary targets were whales, sea turtles, and shellfish, which were hunted to near extinction. By the mid-19th century, commercial fishing became the dominant Industry, with a focus on exporting salted fish to Europe and North America. Mmm, salty fish. Over the years, overfishing has had a significant impact on the marine environment around Bermuda. The depletion of fish populations has disrupted the food chain, leading to changes in the ecosystem like giant killer squid. I mean, that's the reasoning used in the fictional story. And why? And why Sid's so fucking hungry, but still. Overfishing is a major problem in the waters around Bermuda, leading to a serious ecological, social, and economic, uh, a lot of, Jesus, leading to a lot of ecological, social, and economic consequences. The practice of catching fish at rates faster than they can reproduce has severely depleted fish populations and disrupted the balance of the marine ecosystem. One of the main effects of overfishing in and around Bermuda is the decline of important commercial fish species, which support the livelihoods of local communities and provide valuable protein to the local and global market. The loss of large predatory fish, such as groupers and snappers, has led to an increase in smaller fish, such as parrotfish and damselfish, which in turn has led to an increase in algae growth, 
on the coral reefs. Algae growth can smother and kill coral, leading to a decline in coral health and diversity. In addition to ecological consequences, overfishing in Bermuda has also had significant social and economic impacts. Fishing communities in the area rely heavily on the marine resources for their livelihoods and food security. The decline in fish populations has led to a decrease in the availability and value of their catch, which has resulted in lower income and increased poverty for many communities, which is why WIP is so poor. Additionally, the use of destructive fishing practices such as bottom trawling has damaged the seabed and coral reefs. Bottom trawling involves dragging a heavy net along the ocean floor to catch fish, but it also catch and kills non-target species. It damages coral reefs and seabeds and stirs up sediment, which can smother marine life and affect water quality. In recent years, there have been efforts to address the effects of overfishing in Bermuda. The government has implemented fishing regulations and restrictions to protect fish populations and habitats. For example, fishing for some species, such as groupers and snappers, is only allowed during certain times of the year, and there are limits on the size and number of fish that can be caught. Additionally, there are marine protected areas around the island where fishing is prohibited, allowing fish populations and habitats to recover. For example, which is mentioned in the book, at length, that actually got me uh, that actually got me to go deep into a rabbit hole of learning. So fun shit. It's the horror show that is fish trapping or using traps to catch fish. It's a fucking nightmare. Lost nets, lines, and hooks trap wildlife for years as they float in the ocean, sink to the bottom, or wash ashore. Seriously, think about it for a second. Because nets were designed to catch and kill animals. Lost gear or, quote, ghost gear, unquote, of which 700,000 tons of new ghost gear enters the sea each year, by the way. Um, they continue to entrap wildlife for years as it floats in the ocean or, or sets on the bottom of the sea or whatever it is, the ocean, or even as they wash ashore. Not just for years, though, but fucking centuries. Not kidding. I'll complete, it, it all completely makes sense in a second. Essentially, giant fish traps, or any fish traps that are left behind, fall off a boat and they end up on the bottom of the ocean or wherever, can perpetually rebate themselves. They trap animals that in turn attract predators and, and or scavengers because, you know, a lot of fish die in the uncollected lost traps. And then, and then they become ensnared themselves. And then after their death, their rotting carcasses draw in more victims, and the cycle goes on and on basically forever. This is not bullshit. The plastics that make up most of the nets and other traps in the oceans today take around 600 years to break apart. One old gill net found wedged between rocks off the coast of the, uh, the San Juan Islands reportedly sat atop a pile of marine bird and animal bones that was three feet deep. Three fucking feet deep of dead animals caught up in this fucking net. That's a lot of poor helpless fish and wildlife that could have been eaten by people. All those fucking fish sticks just... just gone. <laughs> I'm kidding. But also, not kidding. You get it. The lost fish trap thing is a serious issue. Um, 
Peter Benchley goes on a screed about it, just like I fucking did, apparently. And actually, I, I was glad to learn something new from it. You know, I never knew about uh, the endless killing machines that are lost uh, fish traps and why they're made being made illegal to fish with. Uh, hadn't I wouldn't have fucking ran into that on my own had I not read this book. So good job, ocean uh, conservationist Peter Benchley. Now back to Whip Darling and his hard times. He's in a bad way as far as bill paying goes and looks for work wherever he can find it. Some of that work involves setting and checking traps for scientists, which is uh, what he's doing on this funny, funny sun-filled Bermuda day. So he putters out with his uh, fishing boat that he can't afford the fuel for, and then uh, he goes to check on these scientist-funded traps. And what does he find? That they've been fucking snapped off underwater. Like they're all attached to a heavy steel cable. And that shit has been snapped slash cut off. What could have done such a thing? Uh, spoiler, it was Sid the Squid. I just I just wanted to get that out of the way. It was the squid that, that did it. You know, in case you were wondering, squid did it. Squid did. Squid did the did. Did. So evidence starts to pile up that points to Sid making some murderous mischief in the area. Um, later there's a, there's a fight with some whales. It's pretty cool. Kills a baby whale, I guess eats it, tears it all up. Cause they find bits and pieces of that floating everywhere. Uh, whip does, you know, it's kind of action packed and sad. It's also sad. There's also a, a quasi development of whips antagonists in the area too. Uh, at this part in the book, uh, the fuckhead fishermen that, that, that won't play by the rules and lay illegal traps and nets and whatnot. There's one of those guys. There's a local official that's overbearing and enforces his will on the area via the local law enforcement. And then there's Whip's helicopter buddy, uh, Pilot, who uh, is a protagonist, I guess. Um, he flies for the local military thing. I want to say national national guard coast guard one of those it doesn't matter he's around to help whip with work and such and you know aerial views of things and actually um the pilot guy helps whip find a job getting back uh, and tracking down the richie rich couple's raft that's been bobbing around in the water you know after sid made a snack of them whip goes out to get it because apparently i didn't know this you can resell found emergency equipment that's just floating around in the water even if somebody, you know, might have died on it. I did not know that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, this doesn't turn into the payday Whip expects. Um, when the local overbearing official law enforcement guy uses the cops to confiscate the inflatable emergency raft. So Whip can't sell it on as used equipment and get some money to put uh, gas in his boat. Whip does, of course, what any rational, authority-honoring citizen would do at this point. He takes a knife to the fucking inflatable raft and deflates it in totally the wrong way that is not designated in the raft's instructions, you know, when he puts a bunch of holes in it with his knife. Oh, this ruffles some feathers and gets everyone a good finger wagon. <laughs> Meanwhile, one of Whip's bad fisherman buddies uh, has taken out a young couple. Um, a brother and sister couple, um, taking them out because they're amateur divers and they want to dive on a remote wreck that lies deep in the water against everyone's better judgment. According to the dickhead guy who takes them out there, uh, the dickhead boat captain, the deepest wreck around Bermuda is the wreck of the Admiral Durham. 
Um, he even goes so far as to tell them that it's so deep, only the bestest, most awesome divers can ever get to it. Because of all the challenges and whatnot. So he's not sure if they're up to it. An account, you know, on account of how amazing you have to be to even attempt it. You know, one of those kind of warnings. So they take the bait. Cut, smash cut to them descending down a steel line connecting to the side of Dickhead Fisher Guy's boat. And the couple, um, you know, their brother and sister, and they're like, you know, they're, they're like, I can do better than you can or whatever that dynamic is. So they're diving down attached to this line that, 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 that they've anchored to the uh, wreck on the bottom of the ocean. They're essentially rich college kids trying to up their adventure cred. So they're descending down like a steel cable um, that's anchored to the um, the boat, uh, the, the wrecked ship on the bottom there. Um, so, they're, so they're descending down this line when the brother rides down at a slightly faster pace. A gap between him and his sister widens. She loses sight of him in the growing dimness of the deepening water. At first, she's a little panicked, but then she starts to think that maybe she'll never make it down there to see this fucking ship. They're risking their lives to see. She thought that she might have to turn back before ever getting to the damn thing. Then, then her brother's going to be all like, women are shit at diving on sunken ships. And then he'll go on at length into, into detail about how cool it was. That, and he saw all this cool shit when he was down there. And, and how if she weren't so female, she would have been, she could have seen it too. Because women are, are, and they're dumb women stuff. You know, always doing women stuff with their women stuff. You know, <laughs> uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you get it. She, she keeps trying to see her brother through the, the building murkiness of the depth. She wants to get down there and see the wreck too, you know, because he's going to be a dick about it. Then suddenly she sees something purple glide by underneath her. She's not sure what to make of it. She, she, she thinks it might be her brother. She's not sure. So she keeps descending. Then the purple, whatever it is, starts to come up from below. What is it, she thinks. Her last sensation was surprise. Now the shady guy up top, who's on the boat, uh, waiting for them, you know, because uh, the whole time he's checking his watch, he's thinking those fucking kids have been down there a long fucking time, man. To be clear, he's not so much worried about their well-being as he is about uh, that he doesn't want two dead rich kids on, on his watch. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that would put a serious dent in his shady diving business plans. And his want to not have to explain dead bodies. He looks overboard to see if, you know, he can tell what's going on, maybe speed this thing up. Uh, what he sees is a big-ass eye staring back at him. He, of course, he freaks the fuck out. Um, and then he, I don't know, he runs to the other side of the boat or something? Where the fuck are you going to go when you're on a boat in the middle of the fucking ocean? I mean, what the fuck are you going to do? Anyway, he doesn't get far enough, obviously, because Sid viol violently tips the boat, which tosses the poor dumb bastard off the side, right into Sid's land of human snacks. Oh, fuck again?
The giant starving squid named Sid came upon some rich diving kids. He was hungry again, so guess what he did? He ate those fucking kids. Yo, ho, fiddle dee dee, Sid's a giant squid that smells like pee. Yo, ho, fiddle dee dee, Sid smells just like pee. Well, shit, there's more. But, but Sid wasn't done, you see. He sensed there was some more to eat. He tossed a boat and thought with glee, great, there's one more guy to eat. Yo ho, fiddle dee dee, Sid's a giant squid that smells like pee. Yo ho, fiddle dee dee, Sid smells just like pee. Okay, okay, that's it. That's it. Okay, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Oh man, that happened. Uh, so the whole rich diver kids getting eaten by an unknown creature thing hits hits the newspapers because as it would happen, those kids had parents, one of which is a super rich guy who's very upset that his kids have gotten eaten. And, as luck would have it, that story also makes its way up to one of the great 13 provinces and territories of Canada. It is one of the three maritime provinces and one of the four Atlantic provinces. Nova Scotia, which is Latin for New Scotland. Uh, Yep, makes it all the way up there. Most of the population are native uh, English speakers, by the way, and the province's population is 969,383, according to the 2021 census. I don't know why you needed to know that, but it's in there. I I just did it. They made it all the way up to Nova Scotia. Uh, It made it to the papers up there, and a scientist named Dr. Herbert Talley, an expert on cephalopods, um, that's any member of the molluscan class of cephalopoda such as squid, octopus, cuttlefish, or nautilus. He, uh, he reads the newspaper article describing what happened uh, to the two dead rich kids and the uh, shady captain, and he thinks, Motherfucker! Those motherfuckers were killed by a motherfucking squid, which is a cephalopod, of which I am an expert in them. Or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. His only hang-up, however, is that uh, he's a poor-ass scientist. Um, teaching in Nova Scotia and not a rich one that can travel to Bermuda anytime he wants. So what does he do? (laughs) He decides the best way to get down there and stare into the eye of a murdering squid is to convince the father of the two recently killed divers to fund his scientific research getaway to track down the thing that probably, definitely killed his fucking kids. Will he do it? I'm not saying. Go buy the book. Go buy the book! I'm not giving it up for free, people. Uh, you can, maybe, huh? How about it? Buy the book via the uh, Amazon link I have in the episode description. I get a, I get a little kickback from that. Maybe you'll help a poor independent podcaster out, man. Come on, help me out because uh, I can, I can testify, I am very poor. So, help me out if. if um, if you haven't noticed by now, this story is basically uh, Jaws, but with a but with a squid. Yeah, it has the same characters, kind of just just renamed and slightly rearranged. No kidding. Though, in all honesty, I haven't read the book uh, Jaws yet. Or, you know, but I do have it, so I will get around to it. I have a lot of Peter Benchley books for some reason. Apparently, the auction that I that I win a lot of these books from. Uh, apparently they get their inventory from from people that are really into Peter Benchley stuff. I don't mind it. I'm always up for something I've never heard before. But I I think I have like four or five of his books right now. Yeah, it's a lot of of books that I I mean I'm not familiar with how they 
how they're written. Or, anyway, I have about four or five of them now. That's all you really need to know. I fucking, I'm a gibberish moron. This is the, um, this book is the first one I've read. Jaws, I've only ever uh, seen the movie. But I look forward to reading the book, though, you know, still, given the uh, personal qualms Peter Benchley had after Jaws, and after it became a huge deal, I kind of get why he chose the giant squid for this book. One, they aren't as sexy as a shark. Sure, squid kind of resemble giant penises, but I mean, they resemble giant penises. No one is going after them. Two, they don't have mouths full of teeth. They have, uh, they have these little beaks that come out. And for them to eat from or with, uh, I don't know. So there aren't, there aren't many things you can make uh, that you could do to make that look terrifying. You know, like it's a terror machine from your nightmares. Imagine trying to make Toucan Sam from uh, Fruit Loops into something people are afraid of. It's not going to work. Hell, it, go look up some old etchings too of uh, giant squid and tell me if if they aren't the only monster you're you're only moderately scared of. At the most. You know what I mean? Three, giant squids themselves are incredibly elusive. They're hard to find. We we don't know as much about them as we do maybe about sharks, which we even uh, we, we don't even know a lot about sharks. So we know even less about squid. So there wouldn't be some mass hysterical drive to hunt them down because you're probably never going to find them. This book kind of addressed all the apprehensions that Peter Benchley had about creating another man-eating sea monster, and it allowed him to keep making books he loved about the subjects uh, and about the subject he loved, the ocean, and all the things in it that can eat you alive. It's kind of beautiful. And also terrifying. Fuck the ocean. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Just ocean, uh... Oceans, all of them. Please don't gain any kind of sentience and and come and murder me, please. I'd appreciate that. I don't even fish. So, thank you. Just, just stay where you are, hiding all the squid. Thanks. Ocean. Water. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider contributing via Patreon. I have another podcast going over there, kind of, called Elton's Pro Prod Elton's Podcrastination. Yeah, it's a it's weird. Um, that I, I talk about all kinds of different stuff on it, you know, like one does when not talking about the book Beast and stuff. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what direction that podcast is going to take, but you can check it out there. And maybe help me decide where to go with it, you know. And like and subscribe and stuff to to this podcast on the various social media platforms you frequent. I'm on most of them, I think. I try to keep everybody updated as to what's going on with this podcast here, but, you know, I'm not that good at this stuff. So do that if you can with the liking and the subscribing. That'd be great. Also, please share this podcast along, you know, to anyone and everyone you think might find it interesting or funny or just want to annoy. I'll take that, too. Sharing helps spread the word and build an audience, maybe, for this nonsense, I hope. Above all else, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And please, 
Read or start reading a book this week, huh? Don't let them die out. Thank you again. Bye-bye. 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 B